Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Thank you, Emily, for reading that. The reason that, uh, and we do this at our church, and I know you have this conviction here, uh, the reason that we read the word and we say that this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, is um, we have a very high view of scripture. We believe that the Bible is God's word. Uh, We believe that it is authoritative. We believe that it instructs us and gives us everything that we need to live as God's people. And that if we submit ourselves to it, instead of trying to submit it to us, God will shape us and change us and cause us to be the people that he wants us to be. Uh, well, welcome. It's good to be with you, City on a Hill. Uh, as uh, Aaron, uh, or as Emily said, my name is uh, Stephen. I'm the lead pastor at City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills. And something that is a tradition in the church long ago is uh, bringing greetings from one church to another. So when a pastor would go from one church to speak at another, he would bring greetings because we're in this together. Uh, we are in this together as Christians in a, in a city like Boston, where there are very few Christians. It's important for us to bind together, remember our common hope and identity in Christ, and that we're on the same team. Even though you guys are in a different neighborhood than we are, we're on the same team in the body of Christ, but also more locally as the City on a Hill network. We are a network of local autonomous neighborhood churches, meaning that each congregation has its own leadership. There's no big hierarchical structure over us. Uh, no, we don't have a pope. There's no pope in uh, City on a Hill. Um, and, and because of that, we, we, we partner together. We, we do things together, like the retreat in a couple of weeks. It's going to be fantastic uh, to get together, get away into New Hampshire, and just spend some time together. So I bring greetings from my congregation to yours and just say, we love you guys. We're pulling for you. We're so glad that you're in this city uh, with us. Uh, Before I am a pastor, I'm a father and a husband. I've been married to my wife, Amy, for 16 years. We have four daughters, uh, ages 14, 13, 11 and nine. Someone's always having a birthday in there. They do have names. Uh, Their names are Lily, Addison, Karis, and Amelie. And I count it the great joy of my life to be married to Amy and for them to be my kids. Uh, Right now, we are watching Harry Potter outside every Friday night on a projector screen with all of their friends. So there are a lot of really energetic teenage girls every night in my house on Fridays pray for me. Um, it's, it's been a lot of fun. So I, I enjoy uh, that, that experience. Um, again, uh, thank you to Aaron for the opportunity to speak today. Uh, Aaron came and spoke for us last week at, at City on a Hill Forest Hills and did an incredible job, really blessed. You guys have a great pastor. And I want you to know that if you don't know that, you have a great pastor. Um, he loves you guys. He speaks so highly of you guys. He's, he's constantly praying for you guys. And this is uh, Pastor Appreciation Month. We'll drop that little nugget in there. So gifts of cash, coffee, gift cards, meals, you know, whatever. He's from North Carolina. They like weird stuff there. Like, I don't know, like get, just, just send him an email and just tell him how thankful you are uh, for him. Um, at last week, we left off at the end of Ephesians chapter one and the letter to the Ephesians. And if you have your Bible in front of you, go ahead and flip open there. You might see the word epistle to the Ephesians. That's just another fancy word for letter. Uh, this was a letter from the apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. Paul's, uh, his, his mode would be to plant a church, start a church, and then he would move on to a new place. And he'd often write a letter of instruction back to that church, back to that people. And as he wrote this letter, he wrote this as a letter of encouragement. He really wrote this as a vision for the type of church that they could be if the gospel really took root deeply in their community. 
In the first, uh, you know, verses three through 14 in chapter one, uh, he gives this vision of what a blessed life looks like. All of these things flowing from life in Jesus, that a relationship with Jesus leads to every spiritual blessing we could possibly imagine that we've been adopted, chosen, uh, we've been redeemed. God gives us an inheritance. And last week, Aaron unpacked the idea of God's power at work in us, and we see in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1 the immeasurable greatness of his, meaning God's power, toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he, might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. If you are new today and you are just kind of exploring Christianity and you don't know what we believe, the, the core central tenet of Christianity is the resurrection, that Jesus rose from the dead. And for us, we believe Jesus rose from the dead. And in fact, the, uh, the apostle Paul said in another letter to the church at Corinth, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're wasting our time. We're fools. But the thing about Jesus is that like Babe Ruth, who called his shot by pointing to center field with his ball bat and then hitting a home run, Jesus called his shot. He said, this temple will be torn down and three days later it will be rebuilt. It'll be lifted up. By Jesus saying, I am going to raise from the dead, he calls a shot. And what that means is that if Jesus said that is true, everything else is true. And if that's true, he demands our trust because God is putting his power on display in the world. And if we believe that there is a God who is all powerful and all knowing and all seeing, it is not too much for him to raise the dead. And we don't just need God to raise Jesus from the dead. We need something like that to happen in our hearts for us to have a relationship with God. The only way that we can have a relationship with God is if a resurrection occurs in our hearts. We have to see the depth of our problem that we are separated from a good God. Until we, and until we see that our problem is that deep, we will not realize how radical the solution to our problem is. And until we see the depth of our problem, we won't see how this changes us and we won't turn to Jesus. So imagine that you go to the doctor and the doctor runs some tests and they, and they come in the room and he, has a real, he or she has a real concerned look on their face. And they say, there's something wrong with your heart. Now there's a big difference between the doctor saying, okay, if you just, you've got high cholesterol and you need to maybe go for a run and change your diet, you should exercise. There's a big difference between that and the doctor saying you need a heart transplant. And for many of us, we're treating a heart transplant issue like an issue of better exercise and better habits. And the question we really have to answer and the question that the Bible is trying to answer is, what is our problem and do we need to be saved from it? Do I really need a savior? And how you see yourself will really answer that question for you because if you really see yourself as a person who really just needs to make some small changes in your life, when you really need a new heart, you'll never see your need for a savior. If you see yourself as a pretty good person who just needs to make some tweaks, then Jesus and what he's asking of you will always seem like too much. But the moment that you realize that you need a new heart, you'll say, doctor, please save me. You're not gonna want a savior until you realize that you need one. 
And so there are three truths that will help us answer yes to the question, do I really need a savior? Now, listen, we're gonna hit some bad news here. For the next, it's, it's kind of like when you're on an airplane and the pilot comes on and says, there's gonna be some turbulence. For about the next 15 minutes, there's gonna be some turbulence. So don't tune out. I promise it's gonna get better, but we gotta look at the bad news before we can get to the good news. The first truth we need to understand if we're gonna really understand our need for a savior is who we were who we were before Christ, or if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, who you are now. The first thing we have to be able to do to understand who we were is to see and assess ourselves rightly. We have to really know who we are. Look, I hate the show American Idol, except for the first two weeks. Because what happens in the first two weeks? The people who can't sing go on the show, right? I love it because somebody, had, somebody did not love them enough to let them know they could not sing Celine Dion. They, they just couldn't do it. And they get on there and they're absolutely awful. They're not self-aware. They don't understand and see themselves rightly. We are the same way. We look at ourselves and we don't see our spiritual state. We don't see ourselves as sinners in need of grace. We really look at ourselves and think, you know what? I'm not all that bad. It's kind of like if you're a little bit out of shape and your pants are getting a little tight and you had to go to the next belt loop, you think, you know, if I just need to go run and, and maybe, maybe I can do some of these things and, and I'll feel a little bit better. And we do that spiritually because what we think is I just need to tighten things up a little bit. You start reading my Bible again. I need to go to church. I need to be kinder or care for the poor. I need to do all of these things and then I am good. But the problem is, is that the Bible does not describe us as people who just need to do a couple of things better. Here's what it describes. It says this, and you were dead. Say that word with me, dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, not impaired, not limited, dead, not sick, dead. We were spiritually, we are, we're spiritually dead before Christ, which means inwardly without the work of God in us, we want nothing to do with God or we want God on our own terms. But we imagine ourselves not as spiritually dead, we imagine ourselves as spiritually sick. And when we think about sickness, we think of degrees of sickness. You're, do you remember being a little kid and you would get sick and you had like just maybe a runny nose and mom and dad would send you to, send you to school. And there were some days you had a fever or you held it up next to the light to kind of produce a fever, right? So you could stay home that day. And so mom and dad would say, hey, just, just, just stay home today. And there were some times where you had the flu and you're watching Nickelodeon on TV all week. We tend to think of our sinfulness in degrees of sickness. And we end up comparing ourselves to other people and we say, you know what, I, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief, I'm not an adulterer. I'm really not all that bad. I'm just somebody who just needs to deal with the symptoms and eventually the sickness will go away. But the scriptures tell us that it's not like that, we're dead. What makes us dead? It says we are dead in the trespasses and sin in, in which you once walked. This is a comprehensive way of saying that we are sinful people separated from God and that word trespasses is exactly what it sounds like. Has anybody ever seen a no trespassing sign? What do we do when we see a no trespassing sign? We, we trespass because there has to be something fun on the other side of that sign. In the same way, we trespass and go where we are not supposed to go spiritually. We step out of bounds of God's, of God's rule in our lives and we tend to play God. I define what's good. I define what's right. I define what's true. 
But not just in that, we also sin. The word sin literally means to miss the mark. It's like an archer shooting at a target and the arrow falling short. We are sinful people separated from God and we're considered dead. And, and unlike sickness, there are no degrees of dead. You're either dead or you're alive. You're either dead or you're alive. And this is not just something that Christians have the corner on. So we're not just saying the people who go to church are good people and people who don't are bad people. What does it say in verse three? It says, we all once lived this way. At the end of verse three, it says, this is the reality for the rest of mankind, that every single person without God doing something and moving in us is spiritually dead in our sins a universal reality because sin is trying to find life apart from God. And so spiritual death is life without God, which means that you can be a good person. You can be a moral person. You can even be a nice person and still be spiritually dead because all of us are trying to find life and define ourselves apart from a relationship with God. And we show this death every time we rebel. We show this death, this death every time we fail to live up to God's standards or to a set of standards we've made on our own. You don't have to be religious to have a set of rules. We all have a set of things, whether it's timeliness, whether that's kindness, whether that's you know, ad adopting animals, whatever it might be. We have a certain list of things we do to make ourselves feel better. We can't even live up to our own standards. We, we feel and experience this death when we do wrong things. We, ex we experience this death when we do good things for the wrong reasons. Sin separates us from a holy God who is other. And to be with him, to have a relationship with God, it requires a sinless life because sin is to rebel against God as our king. And our reality is that we will stay dead until God works in us and changes our dead state. It is the spiritual law of inertia. An object either will stay in motion or stay still until a greater force acts on it. Until God works in our hearts, we will be spiritually dead. But not just dead to sin or dead in sin, but we were enslaved by it. We were enslaved by sin. Verse two says, in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The idea of walking or following is not, it's not just like sauntering. It's not like you know, walking through the meadows. It is, this is how you conduct or regulate your life. This is the course of your life and how we choose to live. And the, the, the lie that sin tells us is that sin leads to freedom. Sin says you can do whatever you want to do. You're the master of your universe. You're the one who's in control. You're the one that gets to decide what is right and good. But the sin which promises freedom actually just enslaves us. James K.A. Smith is a Christian philosopher and he says that no one is ever truly free because whatever you love most will control you. Whether it's God or it's money, whether it's God or it's sex, whether it's God or a relationship, whether it's God or the desire for kids, or it's God or a career, Whatever it is, whatever you give yourself to will control you because that will be what you begin to think about and sacrifice for and give yourself to. I don't know if any of you grew up in the country. Uh, we had a dog when I was a kid that you could not leave by itself. It, it would run off if you let it off the, off the leash. And so we had to tie up this, this runner between two long trees. It was, it was, it was several hundred feet. And the, we tied the, the, the leash to the, to the runner and the dog could run back and forth on this runner. And the dog would just wear himself out running on this runner. 
and he had the illusion of freedom. But where was he only actually able to run? He was only able to run where he was tied to. In the same way, we run thinking it's freedom, but we're actually enslaved by what we give ourselves to. What we think frees us actually leads us to death. It enslaves us, it entraps us. And the text tells us that there are three guards standing at the prison door. The first guard we see is the world, that we're following the course of this world. By the world, it means that the the way that the world operates, it's how we would live if we just kind of went with the flow and didn't even try. You just kind of gave yourself into popular opinion. Whatever you see on social media, whatever is popular, whatever is, uh, you know, whatever in vogue, we would just give ourselves to it. Because everyone is defining what is good, what is beautiful, what is true. And our world is defining that. But the problem with the way the world defines goodness and beauty and truth is it's always changing. There's never been a point in human history where the world lines up perfectly with with the Bible. Lines up perfectly with what God considers to be good. If you look at the ancient world, the world in which the Bible would have been written, women would have been treated as property. And that's why it was so liberating that the Bible would elevate women to the status as co-equal to men as made in the image of God. Infants at that time, if they had any sort of imperfection, were thrown into the dump. It was no better in the 1800s with chattel slavery. It was no better in 1960 with Jim Crow. It's no better in 2021. Because the problem is, is you're constantly looking and trying to shoot at a moving target and we do not see our world rightly. John Stott says, every age is bound to have a blurred vision of its own problems because it is too close to them to get them into focus. The gospel challenges every culture that it has ever experienced. And so we, temp- we simply just kind of give into the culture when we sin and it's disorienting and it's entrapping. And a great question for us to ask ourselves is this, Do my choices look any different than my unbelieving friends and neighbors? Does what I value look any different? Do the choices that I make about my career and where I spend my time and my money and my priorities, are they any different? Am I conforming the world to the Bible or the Bible to the world? And if you're following Jesus, your life is going to look different. The world guards us and entraps us in our sin. The second guard at the door is the devil. Now there might be, you might be kind of eye rolling literally or figuratively in your head. You're thinking the devil, really? We're talking about the guy with a pitchfork and a red suit. That's not the devil. The the little cartoon picture that we imagine as the devil is not the devil that the Bible describes. Back in the eighties, there was this huge scare about Satanism and all the moms and dads were scared that Satanists were gonna take over and people were gonna start worshiping the devil because they listened to rock music and Metallica and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and so, uh, but the problem is, is that that's not Satanism. In fact, several years ago, I met an actual Satanist I was was at a coffee shop and this guy had 85% of his body tattooed, including his eyelids. I'm like, this is a guy I need to have a conversation with because he's, this is a bad man. Like, I mean, it was really cool. So we start talking, I start sharing the gospel with him. And he, I said, hey, what do you believe? He said, I'm a Satanist. And I'm like, ah, okay, this ought to be fun. And so uh, so we start talking, I said, well, what do you mean? And so it turns out there are two types of Satanists. There are devil worshipers, but the great majority of Satanists are actually what are called Levian Satanists after Anton LaVey, they're not devil worshipers, they're honest. Because at the center of LaVey and Satanism is not devil worship, it's you and me. 
itself. It centers self above anything else. And any good we do is really about our own pleasure. It's constantly seeking pleasure for our own gain. And in that way, what's weird is we're all, we were all Satanists. Because Satan is more than glad to facilitate you being the center of the universe. He's, he's not going to do this through outright evil. He's not going to come as a cartoon character. He's not going to come with fire. But he comes whispering lies in your ears. He comes with affirming nudges saying, it's okay. It's, it's, just, just do it. It's fine. He comes by placing lingering doubts. And so to follow after the devil is to seek your own pleasure and your, for yourself at all costs. And he does this as the prince of the power of the air, which really does sound like a made-up title, right? If you watch The Office, it really does sound like the assistant to the regional manager. It feels like a made-up title. But the word air in Greek was meant to symbolize everything between heaven and earth the very air that we breathe. And what it meant is that this was something that was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. And the sense of this passage is that this was impure air that we're breathing in, that we're, that we're breathing in the lies of the devil and the temptation of the devil. And this is why 1 John 5 says that the whole world lies in his power. And so here where it says the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, by the way, that word spirit literally translates as breath or air, it means that this is permeating us to the extent that we become dependent on it like children. I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Lorax, or, read, or watched the movie, The Lorax. It's a world where all the trees have been cut down and the air has been polluted. And I love the, the, uh, the movie rendition of this because there's this little character named Aloysius O'Hare. He's a really bad bowl cut. And he has somehow monetized this world. I mean, what he's done is he's keeping the world polluted so that he can take air and he can refine it. He can sell it to the people. Satan kind of works like that. He wants to keep us exactly where we are. He's now at work in us and he's benefiting off of us, meaning that every broken thing we see in this world is due to Satan just provoking our sin. Everything that's disordered, every injustice we see, the sin and the doubt and the struggles that we have are always that Satan is working to draw and keep our hearts away from God where life can truly be found. And all he's doing is provoking what our sinful hearts already want. And that's why the third guard is our flesh. The third thing that keeps us entrapped is our own sin. It says in verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The passions of the flesh and the body and the mind. Martin Luther said that sin has caused our hearts to turn in on themselves, meaning that all we're able to see is us. And so our sinful hearts are kind of like being stuck in a room full of mirrors. And, and there are two reactions to being stuck in a room full of mirrors. Some of you walk by a mirror and you can't help but look at yourself. You're like, I look good today. Some of us, we walk by a mirror and we go, we don't like what we see. Imagine being stuck in that place where all you can see is yourself. And the reality is, is when all you can see is yourself, whether you love it or you loathe it, it's the same heart. It, it's all about you. And so maybe you're one of those people that life has just worked out for. You're, you're a good person, you're educated, you're successful, you're beautiful. You've got everything that you want. And you look in that mirror and your thoughts are, I am awesome. 
And the reality is you'll do whatever it takes to maintain that. Or maybe you're the person, when you look at the mirror of your own heart, you look and you see pain and you see suffering. You see deep wounds and things have just not worked out like you wanted them to. But when all you can see is yourself is you start looking to solutions to fix those things that you cannot fix. And this leads to us carrying out the desires or the cravings of our heart. Just like if you've had a craving for food that you have to satiate it. And what our bodies and our minds want can enslave us. And they're not always bad things. Friendship is not bad. Love is is a good thing. Sex, ambition, these are gifts that God has given us. But what our flesh does is it twists those things from being good to being God, to being ultimate. And when your heart only sees you and what you want, it doesn't matter. You will find a way to get it. We were enslaved. Thirdly, we were condemned. It says in this passage that by nature, we were children of wrath. And look, I know we're going down a bad path right now. It's gonna get better, hang with me. Um, we, were, we were children of wrath, meaning there is something fundamentally wrong with us by our nature, in our very core, we are bent towards sin, away from God. And we will always seek ourselves and what we define to be good. We will reject God and we will always reject God if it's left up to us. And that's why you cannot have a relationship with God by any other means than Jesus, because you can't want him enough. You can't do enough because naturally we don't. This is the story of God's Old Testament people, the Hebrew people. God gave them chance after chance after chance to prove that they could be obedient children. And what did they do? They failed time and time and time again. It clearly shows that they were never going to get this right And because of this, because we are sinners by nature and by choice, our sin is due the wrath of God. We don't like the word wrath. We don't like the word wrath because the way it makes us feel. We think about our own anger and our own temper tantrums. Maybe you have a dad who got really angry and he threw stuff and he yelled and he screamed and he got red in the face. That's not God's wrath. Because unlike our wrath, God's wrath is always just. John Stott said, God's wrath is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it and his resolve instead to condemn it. The reality is, is we want a God like that. We want a God that's gonna deal with evil. Even this morning or this evening, if you, if you don't know Jesus, if, even if you wanted to believe in a God, wouldn't you wanna believe in a God who wants to deal with evil? Do any of us really want a God who's gonna let murderers go? Do we want a God who's not gonna make an end to racism one day and oppression? We wouldn't want that kind of God. We would never be okay with that kind of God. But we're selective. We want God to deal with all the evil we see in our world, but honestly, we draw the line right here, right at our feet. Because because if God is going to deal with all the evil in the world, he can't just stop here. He has to deal with my heart too. God is right and he is just to condemn us. And you might be thinking, I don't like that. I don't like this. This seems like bad news. No one is truly good enough. All of us are in desperate trouble. And if you are starting to say that, you're starting to get the gospel. You have to see how desperate your situation is. You have to look at the test results. You have to let the, look at the blood work. You have to let the doctor's diagnosis sink in. 
You were dead. You were enslaved. You were condemned. But God, but God being rich in mercy, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We have to look at what he did, but first we have to see who we were. We have to understand that we were once dead, but now we've been made alive in Christ. We were once dead, but now we are enslaved, but now we are free in Christ. We were once condemned, but now because of God, we are honored and cherished as his own. Those words, but God, are the giant eraser of the gospel. It erases our past and gives us Jesus's perfect record in our place that we cannot save ourselves. We were dead in our sin, enslaved, condemned, and helpless. But God, being rich in mercy, went to the cross for us, paying for our sins. Why? Simply because he is merciful. How merciful is he? He is rich in mercy. He is loaded in mercy. He is Jeff Bezos rich. Jeff Bezos is the richest man on earth. He's worth $190 billion. Did the math on this? He could give a million dollars away every day for the next 520 years. That's the kind of rich in mercy that God is. An unlimited supply that he just keeps giving And he gave all the mercy necessary to take the wrath and the punishment that you and I were due upon himself. Jackie Hill Perry says that Jesus had the guilty in mind when he hung high and stretched out wide. He bare bodied and face set on joy, became as a slaughtered lamb underneath the wrath of God. Didn't he know that wrath was mine? It even had my name on it, but he knew without asking my permission, a good God came to my rescue. It doesn't say becoming merciful. It says being merciful. There's nothing you did that made God move towards you. You you didn't have to show contrition. You didn't have to show that you were really sorry. You didn't have to show that you meant it this time. God being rich in mercy while you were still dead, died for you and made you alive in Christ. When we were dead in our sins, he made us alive. Before you loved him, he loved you. Before you asked, he came for you. Before you wanted him, he rescued you because dead people don't call out for life. They must be made alive. This is like Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb and saying, come out, Lazarus. He calls us to come out of death into life. And he died to make you alive that you could have a relationship with the living God. And he did this by his grace. By grace, you have been saved. You did nothing to earn it. You did nothing to deserve it. He simply gave it to you as his free gift to you. And this is why saying I'm a good person as a reason that you should have a relationship with God doesn't work because what's behind the words, I'm a good person? It's God you owe me. I'm a good person, therefore you should receive me. I'm a good person, therefore you should forgive me. I'm a good person, therefore I should get to be with you. Who's that all about? Again, it's all about me. But grace is different because it's the undeserved yet costly gift of God giving himself for you and it's freely given. Not only do you need to see how desperately you need a savior, but how freely his salvation has been given to you, how costly, how valuable, how precious the gift of Jesus Christ. 
And when we see that, when we understand that, we understand who we were and what he did, the question shifts from, from, do I really need a savior to how can Jesus be my savior? And and this, this evening, if you've not received that, here's how you do that. You simply surrender to him. You receive it by faith, by trusting, admitting you have no other hope and giving your life to him. And if you've been wrestling with this, that's God at work making you alive. Receive that today by faith. Lastly, the third evidence is what our lives mean now. What our lives mean now because of who we were and what he did, that we were saved from sin by Jesus. We're saved from sin for life in him. Now, the key phrase we see here in the text is in right there in the middle of verse five. It says, together with Christ. And that that wording actually relates to three different phrases in the passage. It does relate to being made alive together with Christ, but it also relates to being raised up with Christ and to being seated with Christ. And notice about those word that wording is none of those are in the present tense or in the future tense. They're all in the past tense. You have been made alive in Christ. You have been raised up. You have been seated, which means these are not things you're gonna get if you just don't mess this up. These are are realities you get to live in now because of the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Which means if you're already a Christian, if you've placed your faith in him, you have life in Christ with Christ. Colossians 3, one through three says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You were dead in sin, you're now alive in Christ. You were enslaved in sin, you've been raised to freedom in Christ. You were condemned in sin and you've been seated with Christ. That wording seated with Christ is a place of honor. And you may be somebody who doesn't feel very honorable. You feel like maybe you carry around a lot of shame and the gospel doesn't just deal with your guilt to forgive you, but it also pushes out fear by power and it addresses shame by by honor. This is saying we've been seated in a place of honor with Jesus. And so maybe you've experienced abuse. Maybe you've been belittled. Things just haven't turned out like you hoped and you feel ashamed about it. Jesus came to meet you in that shame. And the thing about being seated at God's table with him is that when you get invited in by a king, it doesn't matter if you come in rich or poor, you're still the king's guest and you're a guest of honor. Here's what this means for us now is that as those who've received this this grace and mercy in God, do you know what God continues to do? Give us grace and mercy. He keeps pouring out more grace and more mercy, more than we could possibly imagine. Dane Ortland says of this, he says, the river of mercy flowing out of God's heart took shape as a man. Grace is not just simply God's riches at Christ's expense, which is the old acronym for grace. It's not God getting some pocket change out of his pocket every time you mess up. It is God giving you himself, which means that if you are in Christ. There's not a single moment of your life that you're not receiving his grace and mercy. Titus 2.11 says, when grace appeared, meaning that grace itself embodied to us in Jesus. Dane Ortland went on in his book. He says that when we squander mercy, what do you think happens? So you mess up for the, the millionth time or one big screw up. What does God do? He just gives you more because you are in him. 
being that whatever Jesus's future looks like is what your future looks like. Whatever Jesus overcame, you overcome. Because Jesus overcame sin, you overcome sin. Because Jesus overcame death, you overcame death. Because Jesus overcame the grave, so do you. And because he's gonna live forever, you will too. Now, the second part of this life with him is is what God is wanting to do in in showing the world his grace. It says in verse seven, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Our lives become a display of the grace and mercy of God both now and forever. He's doing both this both to us, as we talked about in a minute ago. He's pouring out grace, pouring out mercy, but also through us. A city on a hill, we want to be a church where our city sees and savors Jesus by seeing what God has done in us. We want them to experience the gospel by seeing how we have experienced the gospel. And that imagery of a city on a hill comes from Matthew chapter five as, as, a, as a, a city would sit on a hill and it'd be lit up. And for the traveler who was tired and who was weary coming from afar, they would look to that city and they'd say, if I could just get there, if I could just get behind those walls, I'd be safe. If I could just get around that fire, I would be warm. If I could just get to that light, I could finally see my way. And what God is doing in us as his church is he wants people to find their way to God through us. Now, what best shows that? It's not perfect people. It's forgiven people. It's not people who have it all together It's broken people who's made new. It's not good people, but dead people who've been made alive. And when our friends and our neighbors see that, they don't see us, they see beyond us, they see Jesus. They see his work in us. It'd be like if you were to go down to the Museum of Fine Arts. Anybody ever been there? You should definitely go there if you haven't. Art is a good thing. We love art and beauty. Go in there sometime and and find the most beautiful painting on the wall. And what, if you ever go into a, an art museum and you start looking at that painting, eventually your eyes shift from the painting to that little gold plaque right beside the painting, right? Because when we see a beautiful painting, we want to know who painted the, painted the masterpiece. In the same way, what our lives are meant to be is a display of God's kindness expressed to us in Jesus, that we get his grace and his mercy and others give him glory and praise. And that's going to happen now and forevermore. As we close, I want to reiterate the fact that this passage includes all of us. You were either a person who was formerly dead, who's found life in Christ, or right now you are a person who is dead in your sins and Jesus is inviting you to find life in him. And so this evening, if you have trusted Jesus, are you living out of the hope that you have in Jesus? What areas of your life are you living like you're still dead, like you're still enslaved to sin, where you still bear shame? Jesus has made you alive. He's raised you up and he honors you. And if you've not yet trusted Jesus, I want you to see this as God's invitation to you, inviting you to himself. Maybe this evening you're seeing the depth of your sin and your need for a savior for the very first time. You're looking at that doctor's report and you're like, I need a new heart. I pray that you also see what Jesus did on the cross in your place, living the life you couldn't, dying the death that you deserve and raising to new life so that you could have life in him. Let's pray. 